Welcome to the Stop Over Drinking and Start Living podcast, where high-achieving, goal-oriented rebel women come to learn how to live a vibrant and fulfilling life without requiring alcohol to get through it. No labels, no judgments, no saying you'll never drink again, just real proven methods to help you stop rebelling against yourself with alcohol so you can drink less and do more. I'm your host, Angela Masenik. Let's dig in. Welcome to episode 90, a special interview with coach Corey Williams talking about race and feelings. Hello, hello, hello. Welcome to the podcast, episode 90. You guys, I cannot believe we've done 90 episodes of the podcast. So to celebrate, I've got a special guest on the podcast today, Corey Williams. And I'm going to let her do her own introduction. But real quick, you know, we've been talking a lot about feelings and how feelings drive our actions. And whether you want to stop over drinking, improve your relationships, lose weight, you know, like yourself more, fight racism, get people to the polls. Our feelings are what drive all those actions that we want to take to accomplish our goals. And today we're going to be specifically talking about feelings that will help you become anti-racist or understand why maybe you haven't done some of the work that you, you're interested in doing or why you might be scared to jump into the racist conversation. And Corey is going to help us guide through that with some fun and some ease and to maybe help um, motivate you to dip your toe in the pool. So without further ado, Corey, tell us everything. Tell us about you. Well, I am a racial healing coach and a racial equity educator. I spend all my time talking to people about race. As you can imagine, that leads to feelings. Yes. <laughs> Most of us have difficult feelings around race because there's this gap between who we, what we believe, like that all, most of us love people and think all people are equal. Yet we harbor some implicit biases that are often in this country anti-Black. In other countries, they may be slightly different, but um, we have these moments where our beliefs and our biases are fighting. And that mm -hmm. creates such a discomfort inside us that most of us tend to freeze mm -hmm. and do nothing. Um, and we come up with reasons why we don't have to do anything. It's not my fight, right? Not my problem. Yeah. Or um, it's political, right? Mm -hmm. this, is, this is something I don't want to deal with over here. Um, and then sometimes we uh, fight. People say, how dare you? You're the racist for bringing up race. Shame on you. Mm -hmm. You know, that sort of thing. Or, um, or we run away. We just yeah. run away from the conversations. Mm -hmm. We run away from the people who are trying to have the conversations with us. And some, some of the time, and some of the most painful things we can do are we run away from the things we know deep inside ourselves we should be doing. Yeah. Um, I think the exciting thing about this moment is we're having conversations like this, um, that lots and lots of people are paying attention, some for the first time, to these issues. And that comes with feelings. Yeah. There's nothing like waking up to realizing that people around you were suffering in ways you didn't understand yeah. and in ways you might be contributing to. Mm -hmm. That makes you feel really bad. You could feel shameful. You can feel guilty. Mm -hmm. All of those are really difficult emotions that we have to work through yeah. in order to make progress. Yes, yes. So, Corey, give us a little bit of background about you. Like, Tell us about you and like how you came into this work and sort of like your history. Yeah. Well, so I think I was born into this work. <laughs> so I was born in the mid-70s in Alabama. My mother was a 19-year-old Black woman who'd grown up what I call Alabama poor. That's like no running water poor. <laughs> yeah. Um, my father was a white 30-year-old Stanford-educated guy who can trace his lineage back to 1060. Wow. So my experience as a child was very bifurcated. I spent time with one grandma who you were sitting at six o'clock clean for dinner. You were served on crystal. We had like of lamb. The other grandmother, you ate on your lap in a styrofoam plate. Um, there was always peas, cornbread, and greens on the stove because everybody worked different shifts. People mm -hmm. might show up. 
You ate next to a ceramic cat, a crystal <laughs> bowl full of orange candies, uh, a statue of Jesus, and a gun. Wow. Wow. <laughs> and both were wonderful experiences. I mean, yeah. I was a child, both were magical. Both were full of love. And it helped me very early understand that not everybody went through the world the same way. Same world. Yeah. Two radically different experiences. Yeah. Um, and so I grew up knowing that many things could be true at the same time. Mm. Um, I went off to college and I went to college in Boston and Boston is a place with its own um, race challenges, but not dealt with in the same way as Alabama. And then I came here to Chapel Hill and North Carolina, and it's a little liberal enclave with lots of race issues as well. Mm -hmm. um, and what I realized is that where all these communities are dealing with these things differently, but they're, uh, or actually they're all not dealing with them differently. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, and so in 2016, I started my first uh, small group discussing race and it grew very slowly. We had lots of rules for engagement, but as long as you were sincere in your desire to bring healing and equity, um, there were no other limits. You could ask questions however they came out of your mouth. You didn't have to know the right way. You weren't going to be attacked for asking in the wrong way. And that grew and thrived over four years. We've only lost a handful of members, um, which is pretty good when you have a thousand folks. Um, and then I started moderating some other groups um, and facilitating some online conversations and got hired to do some consulting. I think that one reason um, people like to talk to me about race is that I tend to not react with my feelings. Mm. Um, that I bring to the work a heart for other people and helping them work through their feelings. And because I feel very whole around conversations related to race, I'm able to not be activated yeah, able to move. My body doesn't feel the feelings. Mm -hmm. um, I can kind of know things in my heart and head, but I feel very confident and very aligned mm. that I'm doing the work that my biases um, are still there and acknowledged mm. um, and and dealing with. Mm -hmm. And it, it 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 enables me to move forward in a really positive way, a really healthy way. And I think it's really important for especially racial equity educators to be able to do that because it is challenging work if you have to physically feel all of the feelings. Oh, yeah. Yeah. It's similar to like, you know, like the feminist movement, right? Like we think about the energy and the push and this fierceness that goes into a lot of that work, right? And it, that's where people get burned out and exhausted and end up quitting or like, I can't do this anymore type work, right? So like what you're saying is like, the steadiness, the love, the evenness of it helps you keep going longer. And it helps probably bridge both sides of that conversation easier. Absolutely. And then yeah. I think that too, the constant checking in with my values, mm -hmm. the constant checking in with my why, why mm -hmm. am I doing this work? Why am I engaging like this? Because it's not for me to feel better. <laughs> right. Um, it is for me to help others feel better and to help yeah. them um, do the work. And so, uh, keeping that at the forefront of my thoughts mm -hmm. does help me. I do think um, the other example that I draw from in doing this work is the, um, the sexual assault community and trauma-informed support mm -hmm. and the ways in which we try to take care for ourselves while mm -hmm. we care for others. Mm -hmm. uh, that's an arena where this has been very well thought out. Mm -hmm. And so I model a lot of my, my self-care Mm -hmm. after the the approaches that I've learned through my um, my interactions with that community. Yeah. Well, I actually have an example for you today because, you know, and just so my listeners know, I am just new on the scene with my own work on my own racial healing. So, you know, I was like a lot of other white women in this country who I would never have called myself racist um, you know, I grew up in a very, I think, outwardly racist family. And I remember as a little kid being like, we don't say that word and that's not right. And, you know, they're not different than us and like actively speaking out that way. But, um, you know, as I got older and I went away to college and I got more like seen the world, like, and I had black friends and all this stuff, I never would have thought I was a racist. And 
but after, you know, George Floyd and, you know, watching some things online and learning about the riots, like I did, like it did make me become more aware. And I have to give credit to Rachel Rogers, who is a, a coach and entrepreneur that helps, you know, black women make money. Like she did this very um, loud, angry video and I watched it and it just, it did, it did wake me up. And I was like, okay, I need to be paying attention here. And I started reading and researching. I hired a racial healing coach and did my own work on this. But what you said earlier about like the shame and the guilt, like that, those feelings I had were very, very hard to work through. Um, I'm so glad I did though, because I'm on the other side of that now. And I still feel like, you know, I could have done this sooner and like, you know, those kind of thoughts, but I try not to do that because it doesn't help. Right. Sure. But, um, but anyway, I just want to say that I am new on the scene here. I am absolutely not an expert on this. I am still working through a lot of this myself and I feel like now I'm just tipping my toe into wanting to talk about it more openly. Um, and we're going to talk about this on the podcast today, but like some of my biggest fears was like, I'm going to send an email out to my huge email list and there's going to be some negative feedback and people may not want to do business with me. And I was really scared about that. Mm -hmm. um, but at the same time, it's like, I wasn't, I like to be 100% authentic and everything that I share on this podcast about my own journey to stop over drinking. And if I don't share this part of me, I feel like I'm not telling the whole story. And so I want people to know when they do work with me, I am all an open book. Like this is my life and this is the stuff that I'm working through. And when I work through this stuff publicly, it helps other people work through it as well. And um, I, I like, I was telling Corey earlier, it's like, and I've used this analogy a lot, especially with over drinking, like going through that alone and privately um, and suffering through that stuff and trying to do this behind closed doors feels like you're in the closet. Like if, if I were to be gay and not share that with my people and my friends and my family and outwardly express myself who I am, I would be inauthentic. And that does not feel good. Like that is out of alignment with what Corey was saying with who you are and who you want to be. Right. And I think that's that values thing mm -hmm. that you're, you have better language than I do about this. I just know it doesn't feel good to not be who you are. <laughs> that's how I say it. Right. So I just want to say like, this is me learning and sharing and dipping my toe in the waters. And I am scared of feedback. I just got some feedback that I wanted to share with Corey and like, she can help us navigate um, what to do. Cause she's like, how do you become, how can you do this work and not be activated all the time? How can you do this work initially? Like if you're scared of you know, sharing something on social media or having a difficult conversation, like, you know, that that's going to be scary. And like, there might be some negative feedback. You may not say the right thing. You may offend somebody. Somebody's not going to agree with you. Right. And then you get to experience all of that, those feelings on the other end of that. Right. So I just wanted to share on the podcast some feedback that I got um, and then kind of use that as an example for Corey to walk us through, if that's okay. And please add anything to that, Corey. That was a long no, I'm excited to hear about, about how it happened. Yeah. So basically I had a, I invited people to come in to get to know me better. So I had a coffee chat and I, you know, sent it out to my email list and um, I'm like, just come, I'm going to share the books I'm reading. You can ask me any questions, anything like about my life, about my transformations, anything. And so I shared that I was reading the book, um, White Fragility. And I just, it was like, I'm reading this book and I'm reading this book and I didn't go into any conversations. And then after the, the coffee chat, I sent an email out to the people that attended. Like, these are all the links and resources I talked about. I sent a picture of all my books. And in response to that, somebody who got that email said, might be time to unfollow you if you're going to push your racism political agenda. I am white and I refuse to be ashamed. I had many black friends in elementary and high school because black people didn't have a fucking chip on their shoulder back then. They were just very nice people. And so I received this email and of course I, I, you know, I'll use your language activated, right? Like this immediate rush of anger and rage and like I was misunderstood, mm -hmm. you know? And so walk me through that. Walk us through that. Like when, when that happens, when you're, when you're brave and you're putting things out there and people come back at you, what is your advice? Well, my first piece of advice is nothing is on fire. 
Mm-hmm. So there's absolutely nothing you have to do immediately. Yeah. Especially in conversations that are important on social media or as they relate to your business. Mm-hmm. Take a minute is number one. Yeah. Um, if you are so dysregulated that you are physically feeling it in your body, some people will go numb. Mm-hmm. Uh, some people will, will feel tingly or hot. Mm-hmm. Or, yeah. um, I like to encourage people to tap their collarbone, mm-hmm. remind themselves that they're in their body. You're in your body, you're in this moment, and then remind yourself that your body and your mind and your values are exactly the same as they were before you got that email. Mm -hmm. You are, nothing has changed for you. Mm -hmm. You are still you. Mm -hmm. The other um, important thing for me, and this happens to me a lot, you can imagine I get some hate mail. Yeah. (laughs) I try to remember that that person sat down and wrote that email because of how they were feeling. Mm -hmm. They were having an emotional reaction to what you said. And I try to believe, I believe that that's actually good. Mm. So there's an opportunity in there. Mm -hmm. As painful as it is for you, once you move through these feelings, here's somebody who has shown you that they were very activated, shown you that they are very tender in this area. Yeah. And once you're able to move through your tenderness, you have an opportunity to help heal them. Mm. So when I get activated, one of the things I remind myself is, ooh, not only is this an opportunity for me to make sure my values are in alignment, that my actions are matching who I want to be. Mm-hmm. Um, it's an opportunity later when I feel ready to reach out to this person. So I try to see opportunity in it. I try to remind myself I'm in my body. And then I come to the core of it, which is who do you want to be? Mm -hmm. Not who are you? So the way I think of shame, shame is fixed, right? Shame is I am bad. Shame is a notion that you are something to be judged that is unchangeable, that is fixed, and that is right or wrong. Mm -hmm. It's very black and white. Guilt is actually really fundamentally different. Guilt is about what you do. And we only have guilt when we have values. So guilt is actually a really adaptive and productive emotion. Like it's a, it's an, it tells us it's a, it's a gut check. It's our body, our mind, our heart saying, you're not being who you want to be right now. Mm. So one of the things I try to do um, when folks are feeling really activated like that. I said, is this coming from a place of shame? In which case, let's talk about that and work through that because that's, that's the kind of sort of negative self-talk that we need to release. Mm -hmm. But if it's coming from guilt, Ooh, that's an opportunity. Mm -hmm. Guilt is actually exciting. When psychologists think about guilt and talk about guilt, it's, they talk about it, how adaptive it is. It's inversely correlated with negative behaviors like overdrinking, overeating. Mm-hmm. Um, when we have guilt, we know that there is a good person in there. Mm. And that good person wants to help us find the right actions, the mm-hmm. right thoughts, and the right words. So I try to, as hard as it is at moments like that, to retrain my body that that feeling means growth is coming. Mm. So instead of that feeling means, I think what we think to ourselves is, oh no, I'm about to get blasted. This person is going to shame me publicly. I'm going to feel embarrassed. I'm going to feel called out. Mm -hmm. I'm going to feel under the spotlight. And if we can walk into that and say, this person is going to show the world my values, which is a positive, I am strong enough to walk out and show the world that I am learning, growing, that my growth is not fixed. I am continuing to grow, develop, learn, that I'm strong enough to be open. I'm strong enough to not be fragile. Mm -hmm. I mean, unfortunately, what the woman in that letter told us is actually the opposite of what she intended to tell us. She told us she is ashamed. That's what she told us. Mm -hmm. In her refusal to be ashamed, she articulated her deepest fear, mm-hmm. right? Um, and so I try to see a lot of that feedback for what it is, people talking about their own pain. Mm-hmm. 
Yeah. And that, that makes sense because like when I think about, and when I'm coaching my clients and they're feeling shame or guilt or, you know, frustration or something about like, you know, say they overdrank and how they show up from that place, the actions that they take. We talk a lot about this too in like relationships with other people. When somebody says something horrible, and this is exactly what's happening in this situation, when somebody says something horrible, we have a thought about that that activates our feeling, right? Mm -hmm. And we have to understand what feelings that person had that drove them to take the action of writing that email to me. Right. And I think that was a missed opportunity for me because of course I let my feelings drive my actions in the moment in which I was feeling them, which is what I teach people not to do. (laughs) (laughs) But I'm like, no, this is different. You know, (laughs) I do. I do. Yeah. So um, in hindsight, I think it would have been better for me to feel and process that. And I love that you're, you're, it's like, it's not an emergency. It's not life and death, right? It's an email. Right. And also you still have our email probably. It's not a missed opportunity. It's a delayed one. Yeah. You're doing the work right now so that eventually it might be a year later. Mm -hmm. And I've definitely reached out to people and you are still on my mind. Mm -hmm. How are you? Mm-hmm. And oftentimes that brokers a really productive conversation. They know yeah. I care. I'm still yeah. thinking about them. Yeah. And I, when I first started learning about being an anti-racist, um, what is the term? Is it blocking or canceling? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Right. So like what I want to do is cancel and block mm-hmm. this person. Right. And you know, that's my decision to make, of course, and what I want to allow into my space and whatnot. Um, but I think for the rest of us, like listening, like that's, that's what I'm really trying not to do, especially around family members or close friends or people I'm connected with on social media that I have been, you know, for a long time when they say things, I don't want to just block them. Right. I don't want to just delete them. So let's talk about that for a second. Well, so one of the key learnings about actually being in an anti-racist as you move into this work is realizing that that's part of the work Mm -hmm. that who do you think is going to trust, listen, and believe you more? Like my friends. Like exactly. Like your parents are going to listen to you. Mm -hmm. They're not going to listen to this random black lady who lives three doors down from you. Right. (laughs) (laughs) So my opportunity is to reach the people who want to then go do the work. Yeah. The anti-racist becoming an anti-racist is, um, being able to move lots of individuals into the relationships, the systems that create the problems that we're experiencing. Mm -hmm. So um, like when we look at the results, so the, the um, maternal mortality rate for black women, which Mm -hmm. is totally out of alignment with anything reasonable, Mm -hmm. the way that there are two ways to approach that problem. One is from the perspective of changing hospital regulations and structures, right? Mm -hmm. Laws, structures around them. The other way to impact that is to impact the hearts and minds of the people delivering the care. Yeah. So it's really important as we do this anti-racist work, not to simply focus on the policies. It's tempting because we can write those down, make a list and go after it. Right. Yeah. It feels a much heavier lift to go change the hearts and minds of the world. But I truly believe, I truly, truly believe we have good values and good hearts and generally want to live in love and alignment. Mm -hmm. What we have is these thoughts that are old narratives that Mm -hmm. we replay again and again that we are profoundly uncomfortable with. I mean, when we take like the Harvard, have you ever taken the Harvard implicit bias test? Uh -uh. Uh -uh. Free, it's online, you can take it. It's a, it has some challenges and issues and and researchers look at its limitations, but for now, it's one of the best tools that we have. And it asks you to very rapidly associate um, two things. So good and bad with two things. And, and they, they deploy it in a variety of ways, but one of the ways they deploy it is when it comes to race. And so you're just, you're punching keys as fast as you can. Mm-hmm. And it gets to, uh, in that rapid um, reaction time, it gets to what are my implicit biases. Yeah. Most people are heavily biased towards white folks. Mm-hmm. That is the reality. Mm-hmm. Not, you notice I didn't say most white people. Most people. Mm. it is in the air we breathe it is around us these structures these narratives these beliefs they're not absorbed just by white folks they're absorbed by Mm. everyone Mm. 
Mm -hmm. And Black folks have to unlearn these very harmful narratives about ourselves. And you probably noticed some Black folks have it. (laughs) (laughs) I remember in the 1980s, I think, hearing Bill Cosby's speech to the NAACP. And if you go back and listen to it now, 40 years later, it's about, it's called the pound cake speech. You can Google it, but he talks about where were these parents? Where were these parents? Shaniqua, who's in jail, which Mm -hmm. I've got some issues with (laughs) that, but these people who are in jail, not watching their children and their sons are getting shot over a pound cake. And he talks about the responsibility the black community has, and he shifts lots of the burden and blame for outcome to the black community itself. So these narratives, they, they harm all of us. Mm-hmm. They harm absolutely all of us. Okay, let's compare like that kind of narrative because this is what really made sense to me in the very beginning is like, there's a narrative there about white superiority, right? It's not, people aren't coming out and saying, I am superior, white people are superior. They don't say those words they used to. <laughs> but then that was gotten away. Now we can't say we were told not to call out people by the color of their skin, right? So it's it creeps in there in different ways, right? right. But can you compare the influence of that, right, and how that there is this white superiority mm-hmm. in our society to something else that we could all recognize? Uh, well, I mean, I think most of us can acknowledge that there's gender, yeah. um, superiority, right? Like most of us realize that the world is largely created by and for men. Yes. Um, We can look at simple things. I mean, we can look at things like um, the fact that Viagra is covered under your insurance, right? Yeah. (laughs) We can look at all of- But birth control's not. Exactly. Yes. Um, We can look at everything from policies and Mm -hmm. laws Mm-hmm. Um, to our day-to-day experience. Mm-hmm. Many women who are in the corporate boardroom look around and they're not seeing themselves. My daughter is in a AP computer science class where she is the only, um, she, she identifies as a white, a white um, presenting person. Mm-hmm. She's got me as a mama, but mm-hmm. she appears white and she's the only one in the group. Yeah. So um, we can see it around us and we can recognize it and understand right. it. We can measure it even in the wealth gap, right? Or the, um, the pay gap between mm-hmm. men and women. Mm-hmm. I think where, where it becomes really challenging to see when it comes to race is that one, we feel badly about benefiting from it in some way. Mm. We very much have, have believed the myth of meritocracy for mm-hmm. a very long time. We've, it is so easy, even for um, a black person who has achieved something, I say that success is incredibly sedating. Uh, a little bit of success tends to lull us into, I'm fine, everything's fine. I don't wanna deal with it over there. It's a, it's a freeze reaction, right? Yeah. Um, because it doesn't feel urgent to mm-hmm. us. But it's still out of alignment and it will still creep back up on us. It's yeah. that stuff that we've, we've pushed down there and it gets activated when somebody sends us an email, activated when somebody calls us a racist, mm-hmm. activated when somebody says, okay, that's problematic, or that was classist, or that was ableist. Mm-hmm. Um, that's the gap we feel. That's the sensitivity we have because it's the space between who we want to be and believe we are and the thoughts and actions and words that we're putting out into the world. But you're saying when you feel that activation, that's a good sign that there's a gap, that we're not seeing something about our own biases there. Yeah, you're not seeing your bias, but there's a good person in there. Mm-hmm. That's, that's, what the, that's what the feeling means. The feeling mm-hmm. means I am a good person who is unhappy with something I've done. And sometimes uh, you have to reflect on that, something I've done, something I've said, and no, I'm okay with that. You know, mm-hmm. you, you, may, you may feel that way. But usually it's that there's a bias there that we don't want to admit to ourselves, that we don't understand how we got. Mm-hmm. Um, so here's an example, the, the thug idea, right? So we use coded language now. We don't say mm-hmm. there's a black man walking down the street, right? And, or we don't use the N-word. Right. We say, oh, that gang of kids roaming the neighborhood. Yeah. By which we mean black children. Yeah. You don't mean a group of white children. That's a friend group yeah. <laughs> in our parlance. There's a, a group, group of kids. kids right? Yeah. 
There's but kids if, running around. But if they're 12 year old black boys, they're mm. gay, right? Yeah. Thug is the same way. All of these things emerge from colonial period. Mm. These, these are the narratives that have been going on since colonial times. And they were specifically created to justify the theft of land and the subjugation of bodies. And we told these stories and, and people were like, well, you know, that, that was a long time ago. This went on for hundreds of years, generations of people told these stories. And then once emancipation happened, those stories didn't quit being told. Exactly. Right. So those, that, that idea that black people were inherently violent, yeah. they were, that, that, that they needed to be controlled, mm -hmm. simply transformed into other kinds of narratives. And if you don't grow up, grow up around a bunch of loving, amazing, creative, talented black folks, and most white people don't, and that's a whole other issue. We, we made that happen too, mm -hmm. through um, a system and policies. But if you don't, and you're watching the TV news, if you're listening to music, if you're reading books, these are the same stories you're being told now. Yeah. There's a reason you believe black people are more violent. It is also not true. <laughs> mm -hmm. I talk a lot about both and thinking. Both things can be true. This is what I got from my upbringing, right? That two mm -hmm. things can be true at the same time. There is a reason that is completely rational that people are afraid of black folks. And it is a moral wrong and out of line with your values, right? And so there's the rub, there's the rub. Yeah. I'll give you an example. I talked to a woman who had experienced a break-in um, she'd been burglarized and, and felt very violated. Mm -hmm. And she spoke to me and as she was talking, it occurred to me, she was describing a black man. Mm -hmm. And I asked her, I said, Hey, did you, how did you know? Like, did you see the footage or she didn't know? She did not know, but in her mind's eye, the person she imagined breaking into her house and harming her was a black man. Mm -hmm. Now here is somebody who believes in equality. Here's somebody who is a good, loving, kind, and warm person, a person who donates her time and energy mm -hmm. to uh, Black children, yet she has this belief that comes out here in this moment of stress and crisis. Mm. For her, there's a huge gap here that's painful. That's painful. But the, the positive part about it is she knows who she wants to be over here. Mm -hmm. All we have to do is unlearn, unpack, and deal with that. Yeah. Over there. I love it. So I was, after I received this email, I was talking to my husband about <laughs> all my thoughts. <laughs> 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 and um, it was like, you know, I was like, what other things? Like, just because, like, slaves were freed. And it would be illegal, right? And then the Civil War and all of that stuff. Just because that happened doesn't mean that people's minds magically shifted. No. Right? Like, those people still believe the same things. Those families, that culture, that society, right? Like, those have been influencing us. And if you think about America and how it was built, I've learned so much about America and our history <laughs> in this work that's fascinating, um, which is a whole other topic. But it's like, I'm like, how can we compare this? Like, there's laws that say everyone's equal, right? Mm -hmm. And on paper, there's things that say equal pay, but right. we know that that's not the reality, right? And so I like, I wrote this, just like gun laws don't prevent tragic, tragic, tragic gun deaths, our laws don't prevent black lives from being killed. No. And just because there's a law in place doesn't mean injustice doesn't happen and policies don't protect against human lives. It takes caring human lives with good policies to protect human lives. So you add that human component to it, right? Yes. So like when we talk about feelings and kind of bringing it back full circle here, if in order to make the change to match the actual policies and laws that we have in place, we have to have feelings that drive this action in people right now we're frozen we're scared we're uneducated like we're confused so much confusion right right we've been told one story our whole lives and our parents have been told that story and we think we've brought up that this is the truth these are the facts right 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 and now like all of that is in conflict now all of that is being like no this is not the truth you've been only told one small story mm-hmm and I think what makes that even more activating is that, meanwhile, um, 
Black people have been over here kind of agitating for this, making the point, saying it's true, saying it's happening. And there's feelings associated with watching the folks around you experience that um, enlightenment. And so um, in some racial equity work, they actually separate Black folks to protect them from that process because it can be really painful to watch people acknowledge something you've been telling them for a very, very long time. Yeah. Um, You know, it sort of is, the, the response often is, well, I told you this. <laughs> you know? Right. The, the response is often angry. Yeah. And that creates a whole nother set of yes. issues because while you're feeling exposed and guilty and working through that feeling, having somebody criticize your the rate of change <laughs> is really tough. Yeah. It's also fair, mm-hmm. right? It is both a reasonable reaction to having been ignored for a long time mm-hmm. and is not helpful. <laughs> so yes. there's so much grace that we have to give ourselves mm-hmm. during this process um, and grace that we have to give each other. I talk about it um, in the work as empathizing in. Mm-hmm. And so looking at yourself as you would a six-year-old kid, right? And in fact, if you want to watch some really sad um, uh Oh gosh, an example of how, however present supremacy is around us. There's uh, doll, the doll test, which was used in Brown versus the Board of Education. And th- this was run by a set of black psychologists who had black children react to white and black dolls to see which they preferred. Mm-hmm. And they overwhelmingly choose the white doll because mm-hmm. supremacy is, is around us implicitly. It's mm-hmm. in what you see and what you don't see, where you do see black people, where you don't see black people, yeah. all of the things, right? And just like you wouldn't hold that six-year-old kid responsible, we can't hold ourselves responsible in that same way. There is yeah. a reason you think what you do, but now that you know that, it is your responsibility yes. to change. Yes. Yeah. I think um, the modern doll test is is tough too, because we um, have replicated it several times. Mm-hmm. Anderson Cooper and CNN did it fairly recently, an actual, a high school student did one of the most amazing ones and it's on YouTube, but it's incredibly painful to watch um, little children associate white people with good and black people with bad. And the worst part is you, you see black children do Mm -hmm. that. So Mm -hmm. imagine, we all know what it's like for our kids. We want to reinforce them positively, help them understand what they're good at. Um, That's a part of building positive self-image and self-esteem mm-hmm. and having them achieve uh, in life, right? These kids are growing up with the opposite. They are growing up already believing that there's something inherently flawed in them. Yeah. And I think that is the work that we can all call ourselves into. Mm-hmm. That no one, I, I do not believe that there is a human being who watches that and goes, yep, that's fine. Right, right. But like, I think if I look about where I am now and where I was for the whole rest of my life, I would have been like, that sucks next. Uh huh. That Uh sucks, wipe. That's too bad. I just, it just would, like, it wasn't even like a pause, like, should I think about this more? Is there more that I should do here? Mm -hmm. But now I feel like for some reason it was all in alignment for me to pay attention. You know, do you think that has something to do with the fact, though, that you, this work, this transformation for you in terms of not over drinking and being mm-hmm. able to really be in touch with your inner work made you available? Yeah, I was telling I was telling my husband about this last night. He was talking about one of his coworkers who is doing things um, not racially, but like going to some <laughs> non corona bike rally where they go <laughs> and they. <laughs> don't wear masks and they ride Harley Davidson's. I don't know. But I was like, honey, I'm like, just look at how like our society has, has created her. Like she's unaware of this, right? Like this is not, she's not bad. She's not wrong for it, but she has a set of beliefs because of how, of the system and what she was brought up in and her influences and all of her family. So I think now, yes, I, I believe that I, follow certain people now because I'm a coach and I am constantly looking to learn new things and I've elevated myself 
to be around other types of people than I was in my past. And not, not that there's people, the people in my past were bad. I'm still friends with all of those people. And I'm still connected to most people that I was within my past. It's just that I've choosen, chosen to learn things differently. Mm-hmm. And because I know how that works and I know like the magic of our mind when we learn to think about things differently or to question our current thoughts, right? I talk about this all the time. You don't have to believe your current thoughts. Our current thoughts have created whatever you have going on in your life right now. So I'm more open mm-hmm. to this. And so, yeah, I, but two years, three years ago, no, I wasn't. Cause I had no idea that you could change your thoughts in your brain. Mm-hmm. I just thought your thoughts were your thoughts. And like, that was the facts, right? So for sure, like, because of where I am now, my own transformations and not numbing myself and being aware and like questioning everything that I learn. Like that's how I was able to be open to it. I think too, it's a, I mean, you feel empowered to be bold, make change for yourself, but also to go out into the world and make change. And that, that's been transformative for me to feel like, to stop, to move from feeling overwhelmed. Oh my gosh, racism. I'm supposed to fix racism, Right. right? To here is my specific gift. Here's what I know to be true. Here's what I've felt in my own life. Here's what I've seen in other people. I can do that one thing. And that is good and enough and aligns my values. Yeah. And I think for me too, it's like, what can I do? I'm not, I'm not here to tell people what to do. I am not an expert. That's what I want people to come hire you for. (laughs) You know, I am doing this work. So how I can be somebody that is like helping, right? Like I'm not trying to teach other people how to do this at all. So I think that's where I started. Like Mm -hmm. I'm going to, me as my own individual person can make a difference. Absolutely. Absolutely. And I think that one of the parts of the anti-racist journey is doing it publicly. Yeah. Like when I see people say, wow, I learned, wow, I shared, oh, I made this mistake today. That is incredibly powerful because what you're saying to other people is you don't have to feel ashamed for making a mistake. Mm -hmm. This is the growth mindset. I'm growing, you're growing. This is positive. Yeah. And modeling that for people is incredible. And it tends to call them into relationship mm-hmm. and help them not be afraid of their, you know, of their growth, of their yes. feelings, of their mistakes. Yes. I mean, if we could just all be okay, making a mistake and saying, we're sorry, how great the world would be. <laughs> right. I think so much of it, it's held back. Like, you know, and lots of times, I don't know what to say. I don't know what to do. I, it's just like that confusion, that, that fear that we have, that we're going to be some what publicly ridiculed and you will be. But what I like to say is like, it's a vibration in your body. You can handle it. Well, and too, I think we tend to think of all of the negative things that can happen without even opening our mind to the positive. So let's say you, that here's this negative person who frankly probably isn't open to growth, doesn't have a growth mindset and probably won't learn to not drink. Right. (laughs) But how in saying that, how in being, open and available? Have you made yourself potentially open to people who needed to know you were safe for black folks, Mm -hmm. needed to know you would not be providing guidance that is out of alignment with their values. Mm -hmm. So in exposing your values, your truth, your growth, there's possibility. There's Mm -hmm. possibility for new relationship that is more aligned with who you are Mm -hmm. than this old false relationship that is, was aligned with what? Doing nothing. (laughs) Right, right. Like this conversation that we're having today wouldn't have happened if I wasn't there. Like new friendships are being made, right? So that's a benefit and added to your life, right? Mm -hmm. You get to feel more love, more connection, more purposeful in your life. That feels amazing, right? So like there's so much more great. It adds more to your life. And this is what I tell everybody too about over drinking. It's the same work, the same exact kind of work. You want to be anti-racist, do anything else that you want to do, any other goals, stop over drinking your brain is going to tell you the worst case scenario is the first thing always. It's our default programming, right? There's like, this is, this is the eminent danger and doom hide and retreat from that. We don't want that because your brain's trying to protect you, right? We want to avoid pain, seek pleasure and save energy. That's just how we're programmed. So this is no different, right? But we have to allow our brain to also see the other side of that. Tell yourself, well, what if it did work? What if, what is the other side of that story that we're telling about what's available to me if we do this? And I think that's what we want to hear. It's like, I was talking to my husband again about this. It was like very one long, big conversation about how did we convince everybody to wear a seatbelt? Mm-hmm. 
How did that happen, right? How can we convince everybody that this is a good thing to do and that it's going to benefit their lives when we do it? And back to your example, we didn't just do it through laws. Yeah. Right? We did not just say it's now illegal to not wear a seatbelt and everything's going to change. Right. Right. We started messaging. We had to change people's minds and hearts about what yes. was best for them. Yes. That's the work we're doing. That's yes. the absolute work we're doing right now. We're putting yeah. seatbelts on. <laughs> yep. We're putting the seatbelt on. And how does that benefit you? It's not about what you're going to lose. And which I think that's what most people are scared. Like, well, I've got it so good now. And then there's not enough room for everybody. Right. This yeah. fear that they're going to lose something if they do that. Absolutely. And this is not the case at all. No, and it's not a zero-sum game. It is not a pie. You know, mm -hmm. we're not all competing for pieces of the same pie. Yeah. It is a buffet while, and people are cooking. Yeah. <laughs> they're There's making more. more. There's more coming, more. Yes. I know. And I mean, you, you pointed out to me, too, uh, that um, all of the great inventions that have come out of uh, from black people, mm -hmm. uh, that, uh, that our culture, and we actually know this, like we can prove this mm -hmm. through social science, that, that immigrants, that, um, that everyone thriving creates a more robust economy for everyone. Yes. Like, just like we're seeing now, none of us working, uh, from coronavirus and like so many of us struggling is not good for anyone. Mm -hmm. <laughs> the things stop working. Yeah. But if we really invest in people, if every one of those little black kids believed they were capable fully, right? Mm -hmm. And believed that other people would give them the benefit of the doubt and believed all of that. Mm -hmm. And the reason they don't believe that is not because they're flawed. The mm -hmm. reason they don't believe that is because we are telling them that. Right. And as we can become part of telling them a different story, that may be the kid. That may be the kid who cures cancer. You know, right. even, we don't even know what these folks can yes. do. Um, and so, you know, I look at this time as challenging and painful as it is, as one of great opportunity mm -hmm. um, that I know growing up, we thought about the civil rights era, right? We were like, if we were there, we would have marched with Dr. King, right. we would have done this, we would have done that. Well, most people didn't. He was incredibly um, unliked, yeah. right? He was labeled um, a communist, a traitor. He mm -hmm. was targeted by our own government. Right. We, have, we have sanitized what that was actually like. Mm -hmm. The the Selma, the Ed, Edmund Pettus Bridge March, yeah. was largely controlled by Chicago gang members keeping folks in line. Wow. I mean, we don't tell those stories that mm -hmm. there were actually Chicago gang and LA gang connections that King and other leaders met with. Mm -hmm. Like we tend to think what's happening now is rowdy and crazy and we don't like it. And it should work like this in this nice little pretty box. Mm -hmm. <laughs> right. People should behave and be peaceful and, and do it this way. They should yeah. raise their hand and yep. ask to stop being killed. <laughs> Please stop shooting me. God. I mean, <laughs> we can even watch that on tape and see that it does not work. It doesn't work. I know. And the reason it doesn't work is twofold, right? One one is we have um, qualified immunity, which means that basically police officers never are held accountable. So that's, mm -hmm. that's the policy, legal piece. But that's not what pulls the trigger. What pulls the trigger is that implicit bias that comes from fear. Yeah. What pulls the trigger is the police officer who feels in jeopardy, even when he's not, because of his intrinsic feeling about Black people. Yeah. That's the work we have to do. And that's why it's important to do that work. Because in that gap, if you're in that moment, if you, Angela, are in this moment, you don't want to be acting out of an implicit fear base. No, it's a, it's, a, it's a really good example. Like that person, that police officer that pulls that trigger unjustly, right, is acting out of their feelings. Just mm -hmm. like my instinct was to send another very heated, activated response via email, it's a, it's a fire, right? Like I'm, you're acting on how you feel based on some yeah. underlying belief that you've had and you've learned through our society for sure. Yeah. Yeah. And so we can, I think that's like, you know, instead of hating on the police and like all this and like all of that energy that doesn't help, right? Like let, we're understanding them, why they do what they do. Yes. And, yeah. and knowing that it, it comes from a logical place. Mm -hmm. that we have to unlearn. Yeah. Like it is both logical and problematic. 
-hmm. And so our job is to do that unlearning work. Yeah. And, and when we start to think about it as unlearning um, an old narrative, it doesn't seem so scary. Yeah. And we're just unlearning something. Yeah, that's how I, I talk about unlearning your love for wine. Like, we got to stop telling the story how obsessed and in love you are with your glass of wine. Like, that is not helping you. No, <laughs> not drinking, right? Yeah. <laughs> so we're, we've been gone on. Do you have to go or do you need, can you hold oh, on? Good, okay. So um, tell us about what you're doing right now. Like, what is going on in your business? How can people work with you? What can they do to take this to the next level? Yeah, so I'm right now opening a class called Decolonize Your Mind, and mm -hmm. I'm opening it in two ways, but I want to share the most important way, which is I think, and I'm most excited about, which is doing guided work. So it's somewhat like a group coaching situation in that mm -hmm. um, there's course materials and we'll do six weeks of learning. The first two weeks are really about unlearning those historical narratives. Where mm -hmm. did they come from? Why do we believe black women are, are uh, hypersexual? Why do we believe that there's an angry black woman? Why do we believe that uh, black men are hypersexual? Why, where do these come from? And mm -hmm. we'll unpack them all and then connect them to their modern roots. And then in the next um, two weeks, we do the inner work. And that's the part I'm really excited about. That's where we get radically honest with ourselves about our biases it, um, and it's guided work. So during this time, everyone who's in the course can message me through Marco Polo, we do video. When doing this work, I, I probably feel the same way. Being able to see your face, being able for them to know that I care for them and vice versa, Mm -hmm. And that we're both intentionally and sincerely doing the work is really valuable. So that video exchange is really important. Yeah. But, um, so you don't do it alone. One mm -hmm. of the challenges of being an anti-racist, right, and trying to do the work as a white woman is you can do it two ways. You can surround yourself with other white women because you don't want to burden the black and brown people around mm -hmm. you, right? right? You don't want to. You don't want to force them to teach you. But then you're kind of with a lot of other white women, and you're like, "Is this right? Is that right?" Yeah. <laughs> And the other option is to just do it alone, right? Listening to black and brown voices mm -hmm. online and reading books, which is a very lonely way, a hard way, I think, mm -hmm. to walk through it. Mm -hmm. So for those folks who want to do it deeply, um, it's a coached kind of guided, facilitated mm -hmm. class. Um, I'm going to launch a self-guided portion of the program later. Um, and then I do one-on-one -on -one coaching. So people who want to really get in, especially those who do work with individuals. Mm -hmm. So if you're a therapist, um, helping develop some cultural humility, um, remaining other focused so that, uh, so that all of the supremacist stuff that is around us doesn't work its way into your care. Mm -hmm. um, same thing for anybody who's in the legal field, mm -hmm. frankly, even hairdressers, like anybody who works with people mm -hmm. can do that in a more inclusive, loving um, way. So those are kind of the two ways right now. I also do lots of live Facebook mm -hmm. videos. And so you can follow me on Facebook and Instagram and all the things. I'm on all of the things now. That's awesome. <laughs> and you're getting ready to launch your own podcast too, right? I am. I have this neighbor who has like been so instrumental <laughs> in convincing me to launch a podcast. She's amazing. Um, yeah, it's called um, the Anti-Racist Cookout. And if you don't know a ton of Black folks, what we talk about white people who are very, um, who, who we trust, mm -hmm. who get us, who understand. We say the euphemism is um, they're invited to the cookout. And so, this, like, like, as if, like, as me as a white person, I'm getting invited to your black cookout, and yeah. so then, then I'm cool. Is yeah, that what that is? Exactly. Okay. But okay. it's it's really about who you are. It's like invited to the cookout means it can mean literally we would like to have you at the cookout. But right. It also means that you are gonna you're not gonna be surprised. It, you you get us. You understand. Okay. You have done the work to walk in and be comfy. Nice. Um, okay. And so this is the anti-racist cookout where everybody mm -hmm. is welcome mm -hmm. and we're going to laugh and talk and, and learn, um, hopefully do some fun storytelling, get to talk to my own family, my poor mm. family. <laughs> I have not done that yet on the podcast. No, no. yeah. No, bless their hearts. You know, they know me well enough to know that they'll be dragged into whatever I'm doing. <laughs> That sounds amazing. So when is that happening? Do you want the, do you want the like, 
the real timing or the one that I want to achieve. <laughs> well, you need me to coach you on that. You just got to make a goal and a deadline and then decide that that's when it's going to happen. <laughs> so episode one is actually already recorded. So okay. um, I just am not really super happy with the quality. So I'm learning about the sound piece of this, which yeah. is a new growth opportunity for me. But um, so probably by the end of the month, um, okay. you can connect it on all of your major Awesome. So like the easiest way to connect with you is probably on Facebook, right? Absolutely. And that's it. Corey Williams. I'm Corey Bennett Williams on Facebook and okay. I'm also Corey Williams talks race. Okay. So I will link all of your Instagram and Facebook and website and all that stuff on my pod in my podcast notes. So people okay. know how to get, it, get in touch with you. Yeah, and then you're having some free webinars coming up here too, right? I am. My very first one is tonight, and it is Ooh. specifically about guilt, Ooh. about how to process that guilt. I love it. Um, and I'll do a couple more this week because not everybody's free on the same night. I don't no, know. it's true. Yeah. Why yeah. they didn't clear their calendar for me. Yes. So this <laughs> podcast will be, re will be um, broadcast on Wednesday. Okay. So you plan on having another one, and they could find that information where? They can find it on Facebook. That's probably the best. Okay. Yeah. Okay. And then if you're, if they're on the, your email address or your email list, then you send out announcements there too, right? Absolutely. And you have like a free guide or something, I think. Like, I do. What, what I do you do? do? I, if you go to my website, um, CoreyWilliams.com, you'll find a guide to having more productive conversations about race. Um, it tells, it shares with you my strategy for calling people into relationship so that you can have a good conversation. Love it. Starting with that's racist or mm -hmm. you're racist. Mm. <laughs> that didn't work. No, that's no fun. <laughs> ineffective as well. Right. Um, so, uh, it's a combination of storytelling, develop, developing some common ground, um, giving people ways to say yes. Mm -hmm. And um, to give it, give them opportunities to say yes in ways that are pleasant and comfortable. Um, and I know I've told you before, yes is the answer to almost everything. Yes, I'm going to practice that. Yeah, I mean, we'll, we'll practice with your later lady. Yes, I do have a political agenda. My agenda is to love all people. Yes. That is my political agenda. Yep. I'm, I'm willing to get there. I'm ready to do the work. Yeah. Yeah. I love it. So what do we want to say about feelings? Just to sort of wrap it up when you're looking at, you know, you're, you're contemplating dipping that toe into the anti-racist work. What do you want to say about feelings? That it's important to really look at who you want to be and, and uh, the beliefs and biases you have and know that that feeling comes from the gap. Whatever that feeling is, that fearful feeling, that activated feeling, that's coming from that gap. And if you work to close that gap, that feeling won't be there anymore. Mm -hmm. So that negative feeling won't be there anymore. It actually gets replaced with a really empowered, full of love kind of feeling that's mm -hmm. very positive and feels really good, actually. Mm -hmm. um, so I think that's number one. Number two is it, there's no fire burning. There's absolutely no fire burning. So you can take the time to reflect on any conversation, any thought, any feeling, and do the work. Do the work to unpack it. Write letters to yourself, journal, do all of the things, right? Mm -hmm. So that you can um, start to unpack, unlearn, and understand um, where these feelings, where, the, where this old knowledge is coming from that, that creates those feelings. Yeah. One thing I want to add to that, that was amazing, is that for all work that we want to do in self-development and any goal that we have, you have to be willing to feel the shame and the sadness and the embarrassment and the anger. Like that, that activation almost is a requirement for you to get past because if you didn't have the activation or this intense feeling come up, you don't understand where your growth is. You don't understand where that gap is missing, right? So we need our feelings, those feelings to show us that. So it's an opportunity, like you said, yeah, when that I, happens, this is an opportunity for us to grow and go deeper. I think that that, that comes from values. Like you're like, yeah. yay, here's what you get to celebrate today. Yeah. If you feel uncomfortable, it's because you have good values. Yeah. So we just got to figure out how to get into alignment. Yeah. Love it. Cool. Thank you. Anything else you want to add? No, but I am the luckiest neighbor on earth to have gotten you a few doors down. I'm oh really glad. That's exactly how I feel. Oh. You're the best. Thank you so much. You're welcome. Bye. Bye. 
Wow, that was such an amazing interview. Thank you so much, Corey, for coming on the podcast and sharing all of that. And I just want you guys to know that I was somebody that didn't think that I had any racial bias or things to work on six months ago. And it wasn't until I was open and I challenged my own thoughts, which I recommend that everyone does in any area of their lives. Just because you've been thinking one thing doesn't mean that you have to keep thinking in that or you should keep thinking that. So this is no different than what I challenge you guys to think about alcohol, right? People that overdrink have a lot of thoughts about alcohol that don't help them stop over drinking. And our society has a lot of thoughts about black people that doesn't help us become anti-racist or move that needle to lift up black lives. And so I just want to challenge you guys all. I know it's uncomfortable. I know um, our society leads us to, to believe certain things and think certain ways, and it's not your fault. Um, but now that we do know that this exists, it is our responsibility to look at our own thoughts and see how we're contributing or not contributing. And... Um, yeah, it's, it's normal to feel uncomfortable with all this, but just like any area of growth in your life, it's supposed to feel a little uncomfortable. And like Corey and I talked about today, those uncomfortable feelings are signs that we're moving in the right direction. So you should feel uncomfortable. It's not something that's going to last forever. You get better at it. It gets more comfortable. And you know where Corey is now is just keeping it neutral and helping you see um, how you can show up in a way that feels good is really important work. So I love you all. Thank you for being here. Thank you for listening. And we'll talk to you next week. Bye for now.